I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Dina Metzger, a writer and feminist and ecological thinker. She's published over 19 books and been teaching writing for over 50 years. La Negra y Blanca won the Oakland Penn Literature Award. Her penultimate novel, A Reign of Nightbirds, focuses on two climatologists, one native, who confront what they know and what they learn from the land and the cosmos. An earlier novel, The Other Hand, is an epistolary novel addressed to Cardinal Lustiger by the protagonist, a cosmologist who states that the Holocaust and the bomb are the two Coens of the 20th century. In La Vieja, A Journal of Fire, her latest novel, uh, La Vieja takes up residence in a fire lookout in the Sierras, watching for fires and crossing the borders between time and space, human and animal. She, she originated the genre, the literature of restoration, to promote spirit-based, earth-based writing free of the seeds of extinction and climate collapse. She lives at the end of the road in the Santa Monica Mountains with coyote, bobcat, mountain lion, squirrel, owl, raven, and more on land she and the community have designated as a sanctuary, sanctuary for all beings and regularly meets with African elephants in the wild. And her website is dinametzger.net, D-E-E-N-A-M-E-T-Z-G-E-R.net. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. Second, thank you for being on the program again. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Derek. And, um, you know, from the time that you invited me to come back, I've been uh, thinking about a moment when we met and I've been dying to talk to you about it. So I think I'm just going to plunge in, if you don't mind, and uh, remind you that we met, I believe, at Bioneers many years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And you and I were on a panel. And I remember that you were accused, using that word deliberately, of caring more about salmon than human beings. And it was, um, it was a frightful accusation. There was a lot of tension in, in the room. And, um, that seems to be such a common trope that people are accused of not loving human beings enough or not loving themselves enough, on and on and on. And I wonder what you would like to say about that, if anything. Um, well, um, yeah, I do have something to say, but I also have kind of a joke response, too. Um, do you remember how I responded? I don't. No, but I do remember there was a sort of vote, and it was you and me against the world. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so my, my my more serious response is that um, this – one of the things that, that offends me mightily is that basically more or less every mainstream article about the – endangerment or extirpation of some species has to come back to how this will affect the economy. So the oceans are collapsing and fish are dying and, you know, oceans, you know, how many hundreds of millions of years old with all of their life and the, the entire sort of fish lineage that goes back however many hundreds of millions of years um, is disappearing and what we care about is how this will affect uh, global trade. And so it, it all really reminds me of sort of classic narcissist, narcissistic sort of abuse in that um, – um, I mean we've seen this. You know, we've seen this in bad movies and we've seen this in bad relationships where um, – you know, if there's a perpetrator of abuse and, you know, the the little, you know, a, a little child, you know, falls down and hurts her knee and the mother runs over and pays special attention to the little child, then if there's an abuser present, he's going to go, well, why aren't you paying attention to me? And so that's one of the first things that comes up for me when you when you say this is this is just 
um, when I say I love salmon and I don't want them to go extinct, it's just outside of the context of a sort of narcissistic abusive situation. It would be absolutely absurd for anybody to respond. Well, what about me? You know, it was really terrible. What? Um, you know, I mean, there there are atrocities happening in the Ukraine right now, and well, that's nice, Dina. But what about me? <laughs> it's like, oh, and and we we can't say this. It, it would be when this happens with a with a with a human situation on a human social scale. We recognize this as as really absurd that you know there there's a war going on somewhere and terrible things are happening and then for me to say well what about me that's that's awful but when it happens with non-humans it's essentially every single time and actually it does happen with Ukraine and everywhere else the quote cost of the war is front and center and but I guess. What I want to go to is, I believe you really love the salmon. And that's what feels so important to me. And I really do love the beings of the natural world, some that I'm closer to than, than others. And it feels so important to me that we be uh, allowed and encouraged to have these deep feelings of um, camaraderie, companionship, and caring about other beings, even though they're not us. So, um, and I, I love what you just said, and I love even though they're not us, and I would also say at the same time, especially because they're not us. Yes. Um, yes. Both both love them for the similarities and the differences, and you know I think about this quite often. I mean, as many people know, and you may know, I see bears every day, every single day, and <laughs> I I often think. What what do I look like to them? Mm-hmm. By which I don't just mean, <clears throat> I, which I I don't mean cosmically as like, do they like me? I mean that's that's interesting and fun to talk about too. But also I think a lot about how your world would be different if they have a, they have a sense of smell that's like supposed to be a hundred times better than dogs. Yes. And how do you perceive the world? I just we we literally cannot imagine it because we have our senses. But how do you uh, how how does a so a, a different story? A plant had some aphids and I took it outside, and within five minutes there were um, there were. Uh, honeydew enjoying wasps there, not to eat the aphids, but to eat the sweet stuff all over the, the, the leaves. And within a day, there were all these tiny, tiny, tiny little wasps who parasitize off of the aphids. They lay eggs inside the aphids. And mm. they all got there because of either A, the smell of the aphids, or B, messages sent off by the plants, which okay. plants do this. They say, hey, Hello, there's a feast here, please. Or maybe they're calling 911, you know? Right. And, and in any case, it's like, I know I'm getting off topic here, but I just, I love thinking about how different the world must be to all, and there, what a joy and beauty it is that there is this world that has all of these beings in it whose perceptions are so dramatically different than ours. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? I certainly do. And I have a little story, which is, I don't know why it happened. I was coming home from some trip and walking through LAX, Los Angeles Airport. And I suddenly asked myself, how would a whale see this environment that I was walking in? What would their intelligence (coughs) 
about everything, about the structure, about what we use to make it, about the busyness, all of it. And um, it was properly unnerving to look at our culture from the whale's point of view. And I hear you about, you know, even just casually, does the bear like me? But I don't think bear likes us anymore. And I don't think wolf likes us. And I think there are very few animals or beings that like us because we don't know how to live in a friendly relationship. So I I completely agree with you. And there's a line from a book I read when I was a teenager that's always stuck with me. I have a couple problems with the line, but but in any case, the line is, if animals could conceive of a devil, his image would be man. Mm. And the thing I don't like about it is I'm not sure that animals can't conceive of a devil. Um, I mean, I don't want to limit what they can and can't conceive or conceptualize until I have better understanding. So, But apart from that, I, I think that that's generically true. I think, though, that just as bears or whales are not a monolith, I think they also recognize that we're not a monolith. And uh-huh. I think about that. When I moved to the land where I live now, for the first couple of years I lived here, I've lived here 22, 23, 23 years now. And when I first moved in, I always felt like the sort of the trees were looking at me like, oh, you know, he is, he's a good enough guy, but he's still, you know, basically he's still a Nazi. He's still, you know, in terms of looking at the ultimate oppressor, you know, he's still a member of the oppressor class, but he's okay, I guess. And that has changed over the years. I'll tell you why for two, two ways, one dramatic and one not so dramatic. And the dramatic way was that, um, I was walking down the path that I'm the only human who ever walks on this path normally. And I saw some strange footprints and, a and so I saw that somebody else had been on it. And then I started paying attention. I started smelling cigarette smoke. And then I eventually caught some guy who was in the forest cutting burls off trees to sell. Burls are, are yeah. things on redwoods. That's, that's all that people need to know. They're, they're, they're an important part to a redwood. And, um, and I nicely escorted him off. And then... Uh, he came back the next day. I nicely escorted them off. And then the third day, I nicely escorted them off. And I said, really, stop doing this. And and he, he stopped. And my point is that the day after the day after that happened, um, I saw the biggest red-legged frog I've ever seen. I saw what at the time was the biggest pile of bear poop I'd ever seen. And I was walking through the forest, through the path, and a a small songbird flew out of the underbrush and brushed my chest with its wing. Oh. And my point is that things changed since then. And another thing that's changed is that it is so important to me at every, I think about this every single day and I do tangible things for this, that the land be happier that I'm here than if I were not. And I basically to use an economic term, I pay my rent. And because of that, I, I, well, like there was a, a, um, a mother bear who abandoned two cubs and this year and either that or she got killed. I don't know which, but the point is she abandoned them just outside my door. And I don't think that's a coincidence as opposed to, you know, next door or somewhere else. I think, I think that they can recognize that they can recognize our actions. And just like, I think about this in terms of refugees and I'm sorry, this is your interview and I'll, I'll shut up in a second, but I think about non-humans having been made refugees in their own homes. And I think about them as being, as living, um, under an occupied territory and even if you are, you know, a Jew living in occupied Poland, I mean, there are still some people who are nice. And if you can figure them out and we need to help them 
we need to do many other things too in terms of stopping the entire occupation. But in addition, in the meantime, we need to do everything we can to help these refugees to survive a little bit longer until the occupation does end. It's, take this anywhere you want or, or not. Well, where I want to take it is that um, the story that you told has many ways of being understood. And the way that interests me most is the one in which the um, intelligence and the um, ability, the profound ability of the natural world to respond and, and begin a conversation is apparent. The last one being with the bird. And so, yes, it's nice that they recognized you, but it's also astonishing that, well, it's not astonishing. We need to understand that the beings in the natural world have this ability and that they are more profound creatures than uh, than we have ever recognized. And I'm thinking of... Um, a connection that I had with uh, uh, people in India because there was a wave of elephants um, that were acting aggressively against human beings or against other animals, which they had not done before. And it really was because their habitat was taken exactly what you're talking about they were refugees but they had nowhere to go they didn't have a place to go where they had enough food and space and everything they needed uh, because human beings just continually um, press themselves uh, take away the territory take it over um in this particular case, when I was in conversation, this group of elephants kept coming back to a ranch, even though they did everything to try to get rid of them. And then as I listened to the story, what I heard was that one of their people, an elephant, had died. And when the elephants were permitted to go back, and be with the dead patriarch. They stay there, <clears throat> excuse me, as they do three days, and then they left. But what was necessary was to recognize that they had to go through a morning ritual. So sometimes that's what's calling them. Other times, they are just so hurt, angry, desperate, hungry, frightened that they do take it out on human beings. And when they do, like the lions in Africa two years ago that ate, um, uh, I've lost the word, um, ate the ones, the predators who were uh, going after the elephant trucks. Um, and so there were two or three men who were eaten by the lions after they had attacked uh, the elephants, as they do constantly for their tusks. So we have a complex intelligence in the natural world that we have not recognized. It's complex and it's beautiful and it's um, heart led. And so I'm thinking this bird had the entire story that you had gone through in her mind. She had, we don't know how, learned it. And there was a field of understanding among all the beings who then said, okay, he's trustworthy. We're going to show ourselves to him. Not only show ourselves physically, but show who we are to him.
Well, that's an extraordinary gift you were given. So that's my sort of rambling response. But um, no, I think it's it's great, and I I think one of and I I think honestly that that those sorts of experiences are our birthright as members of the larger community of life. And one of the things that, um, <coughs> just, excuse me, just like, just like an abusive parent can, uh, one of the costs as well as extraordinary costs to the, to the victims, one of the costs to the abusive parent is a, you know, a, a relationship that is not filled with fear with the rest of the family. And I think that that is one of the costs of this way of living that we, um, we, uh, we have the ability for me to communicate with you over a long distance. We have the ability as soon as this is done, I can go open the freezer and get ice cream. And, you know, it's, we have all these, these luxuries, these mechanical luxuries in our way of life and miracles like, you know, open heart surgery. And they have costs. They have costs to the world. And one of the costs to us is that we don't know what it's like to live embedded in a world of sentient beings who are all as I, I want to add the I want to add one word to your description when you were talking about um the intelligence out in nature. I just want to add idiosyncratic too because uh-huh. because every I am sure that this is true for every single species, but the species I've known and been able to understand a little bit um, have been tremendously idiosyncratic. You know, individuals have oh, like one of the things. So, sorry, I'll, again, I'll, I'll try to, to make this short, but I I I learned several years ago that mealworms will eat styrofoam. So I have for ten years now been raising some mealworms, and uh, I have. 15 or 20 different containers full of mealworms, shoeboxes or whatever. Mm. Um, and I feed them, you know, some wheat bran and, and then lots of styrofoam and then also lettuce or cabbage or whatever. But the point is that at first I was surprised when different communities of the, the different shoeboxes, um, some of them like some foods that others don't like. And at first I was like, well, that's weird. They're just mealworms. And then it's like, well, I I don't like beans. You know, it's like we all have preferences. So why would the mealworm communities not have preferences? And I've seen this with all sorts of, of non-humans that one will like one sort of food. One will another of the same species doesn't like that same food. And I know that that's completely trivial, but that's sort of the level at which we don't perceive the natural world is that even somebody who's spent decades writing books about this still somehow gets surprised when a non-human has a preference. Do you see what I'm getting at? Absolutely. And so each species has different, let's say, intelligences, and then the individuals within that species also. And I, I guess that's why there's now this movement to grant personhood to uh, various beings in the natural world, rivers, mountains, elephants, etc., um, or to the natural world itself, because, um, because we recognize the range of these beings. Um, and the need to meet them in terms of who they are. So when I write, for example, and I write the word bear, um, I capitalize it in the way that I would capitalize French. Um, I capitalize it 
to indicate that this is a particular sentient being um, with a range of complex and I love your word, idiosyncratic. Um, It seems so important to recognize who these beings are and that we actually will not survive unless we do that. Um, That it's not just interesting to recognize diversity. It is essential. And to withdraw, I think this is the part where you and I were agreeing on a lot, but we really agree. Withdraw from the way that we are dominating and excavating and destroying and poisoning everything, that we must pull back. And one way of doing that is to recognize that these beings, in their particular ways, are as important and intelligent as we are. I obviously completely agree. Um, I'm thinking about an exchange I had with Neil Everenden in 30 years ago and five days. It was on four days. Anyway, it was 1992. One of the interviews I did for Listening to the Land, one of the first ones. And at one point, <coughs> he, he was talking about sort of we shouldn't make the distinction between humans are significant and non-humans are insignificant. And I, I asked him, so if we don't draw the line as, of, of significant beings between humans and non-humans, where do we draw it? And he, he responded, um, why do we need to draw it at all? That was exactly my response. Why do we have to draw a line? You know. Go ahead. Go ahead. That that was the whole point of the story. Right. Though there are, I don't know how many, 400, 500 different Native American tribes, um, languages, etc. Nevertheless, for the most part, we can see when we look at their various cultures that they have a relationship with the natural world that is extremely profound. And therefore, um, when the colonists came here, they found an, a, an intact system that was thriving. And for whatever reasons, which we know, but let's not go into it, that this culture has withdrawn from being in the natural world and being connected. And that has led us to extinction and climate collapse, etc. So to come back to not drawing the line, to recognizing the intelligence, to giving them back, restoring the land, to opening the zoos and letting the beings out and to stop using animals in the ways that we do, to stop thinking that they are a resource. How do we have and what would it look like to have a right relationship with the range of beings? and? begin to understand their interconnection. Again, I'm going to go back to your story because it's such an iconic story. Um, you had a sighting of a frog that you hadn't had a sighting of. You had a, a um, bear scat and, and you had the bird. These are three very different animals that were telling you that they're in a conversation, right? They're in a field of knowing. Um, it's so important for us to understand that. There's been all this uh, research and writing lately about 
which is so welcome about the intelligence of trees and um, uh, how they communicate. Um, and the entangled life um, of all the smallest beings, the molds and the fungi and and the entire world that they are keeping going. It's really stunning. But, it, you know, what I'm hoping is that our minds break open to this understanding so that we can really return to what would be our birthright if the culture hadn't uh, undermined our deep and original knowing. So whenever we, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. I was going to say whenever, whenever we talk and also when, when I read your work, I, there's always sort of a battle inside of me as to whether I appreciate your analysis or your stories more. And, um, you've done some great analysis and can you, can you give, and you've done a couple stories too, but can you do a couple more stories of interactions with, um, animals? I mean, like, like your elephant story that you just told, um, do you have, can you tell a couple more stories that you especially like about, Sure. I want to give people examples of, you know, if, if, if they haven't experienced it much examples of how they can open up their own lives to it. Well, so I'll start with, with a small story. I was, um, walking in the woods in, um, in Arizona under the muggy and rim place called Ponderosa Pines. And I was, you know, just walking. I had about 45 minutes till I had to return home. And I saw a squirrel came down from a tree. So I stopped to look at it and it stopped to look at me. So I stood there and we were looking at each other. And the squirrel made a squirrel sound. So I made a squirrel sound back best as I could. And it went up the tree and stopped and made another squirrel sound. And I talked back to it. I may have said some words in English as well. Um, and it went up and down and up and down. And we communicated in some way. For that 45 minutes. And then I had the thought, oh, it's getting dark. There are mountain, there are mountain lions here. Time to leave. And the moment I had that thought, the squirrel was gone. So, um, you know, I live here, um, with everything, mountain lions, coyote, etc., uh, bobcat, squirrel, ants, <laughs> everything. Um, and I think, like you do, that it makes an extraordinary difference that my heart is open to these beings and that I do little to change the territory. Except because I, I came to live in a place that had been altered. Um, I have to offer water. And, uh, and so I do. And now we're in a water shortage. And I really make sure that the land gets the water before I think of any extras that I would have. We have stolen their water. That's how it feels to me. And we must return it. So we put water out for the wild and stuff and have, you know, have the joy of the, the deer coming by and the mountain lions. And, um, 
We have had several occasions where people have seen mountain lions on this property and have been relatively close. Once uh, my land partner, uh, who is a native woman, who I put up on the hill to have a a retreat, uh, woke up in the morning and found that there was um, mountain lion scat all around her tent. So what's being said? We know who you are. And someone might think me naive, not to be afraid, but I think we are in a real relationship with the animals on this land. And, of course, I have this extraordinary, real, sort of hands-on relationship with elephants in the wild. And at first it was only in Botswana, in Chobe, um, where I met an ambassador, we call him the ambassador elephant, and he and I did trespasso. We looked in each other's eyes um, for 30 minutes. And then as we left the, uh, the reserve, all the elephants in his herd, at least certainly seemed like all the elephants, several hundreds lined up along the road, on the riverbed, along the road that we had to exit. And we drove by and they nodded their heads and flapped their ears as I and two other women who were with me in the back of the truck nodded to them. There was a profound communication that would have been enough for a lifetime. But every time I return, and I think it's been 12 times to Africa, I go to the same place at the same time. It was the last hour of the last day and wait there and something happens. A narrative story happens. They come And through what they seem to be doing among themselves, something astonishing happens. That is definitely a communication. Then I wondered if that would happen somewhere else. And so something similar happened um, when I was at Tula Tula, which is a preserve in uh, South Africa, where I guess the shorthand would be that Um, There was a water shortage and the indigenous people also suffering a water shortage and the reserve had water brought in and the elephants followed us down. We were out on on a drive. The elephants followed us down along the water pipe and indicated the matriarch, Frankie, indicated that she was ready to break the pipe if she didn't get water. And they stood outside our tents and kept communicating it. And at one point, I was eye to eye with Frankie, and I heard her say, do you know how hard it is? To be a matriarch, that is to be the one responsible for all the other elephants with me. And I cannot lead them out of this fenced reserve that, yes, you have created for my protection, but I can't take them to water. And this resulted in their really bringing water in, not only for the elephants, um, but also for the indigenous people. It was a bit political situation. Um, So to be open to real communication and to deep, deep listening, to what the other beings are saying, and to be trustworthy. Do I have time for another story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have 
we have about 10 minutes left. Oh, good. Okay. Um, a member of our community was very ill. And another member of the community was a dreamer. And she had a dream, which she was sure was a healing dream for the woman who was ill. And in that dream, there were many snakes um, that were with us in the council. And they were, they were raising, you know, sort of like, they were raising themselves. They, they were bending and turning and curling. And then in the dream, they said, do you trust us? And at the moment, now, you know, snakes, this is the, the healing symbol, right? This is the caduceus. This is the healing symbol. This is the healing symbol of the entwined snakes uh, for the medical uh, organization. Um, so the snake is a is a healing presence. And as I was on the telephone listening to this dream, and my assistant was in another room and where we have a, a, a full glass door and she didn't know what I was talking about. She said, you've got to come quick. And there was a rattlesnake that was rising up and sort of dancing in, in the door as if she wanted to come in. Because we're open to dreams. Because we're open to the animals. Because our hearts are open. These things can happen. But they require us to be willing to change our minds and um, to to step out of the human hierarchy. It isn't true. It's something we have imposed. It's not real. The interrelationship of all the species, that's real. And I, I love that last story, and uh, I think that what we're talking about can be extremely, and I mean both of these in a good sense, it can be extremely cosmic, and it can also be extremely mundane. It can be just the stuff that happens. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, just I'm just saying right, mundane, keep going. Um, and part of the problem is um, I know in these politically correct days, me even saying this is going to to sound bad, but I don't mean it bad at all. I mean it actually quite good that other languages, languages we don't understand by definition sound like just sounds. And I mean, that's where the Greeks came up with the term barbarians is because they didn't speak Greek, and all they said was ba 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 ba. And my niece, one of my nieces, is is married to a man from China, and she lived in China for many years. She's a, a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, and oftentimes when I see them together, they will speak Chinese, and it sounds like nothing to me, and. It, I mean, it's, it just sounds like just it is it literally is just sounds because I don't speak Chinese. And my point here is that it's not too much of a reach to go just because I don't understand what they're saying doesn't mean they're not saying anything. It's obvious they're saying something in Chinese, but we almost never extend that to the rest of to, to, we never extend that past. Past humans. That just because I can't, I mean, it's funny. My dogs know the word. I got to say this quietly because they're here. Go for a ride. I mean, they, they know, you know, time to eat. They know, you know, all sorts of inside, outside. They know all those words. How many words of dog do I actually know? Right. 
none. I know it's, it's, it's woof. And then I say, shut up. I'm trying to watch TV. You know, it's, um, so there's this, I think for me, a lot of it is just opening up. Oh, I guess here's the story I want to tell is that my book, language older than words was originally supposed to be <clears throat> a really happy book about just interspecies communication where I was going to collect all these stories of people having conversations with non-humans and the point was going to be I was going to try to prove that non-humans are really sentient. And I realized that the, I couldn't write that book. I tried writing it for a year. And then the moment the book opened up for me was when I realized the question is not are they or are they not sentient? The question is why do we not listen? Mm-hmm. And my entire my entire writing life since that moment, I mean, that that is one of those you know, one instant that changed everything for me because no longer was it is the burden of proof on them to show that they actually can communicate, but the burden of proof is on me to show why I'm not listening. Do you see what I'm trying to get at with that? Yes. And um you know if we could just go back to, to the dogs, a uh, gentle boy who's a husky has a very elaborate uh vocabulary that he has created to talk to me. I'm not sure this is his vocabulary. No, he has watched me. And so, and people laugh and they say, oh, he's trained you. And I think, well, why not? Why should we not be in a conversation where he says something and I respond? Um, So he will make a sound or he will do a gesture or he will poke me in some way or he will point to a drawer with the t-r-e-a-t-s-r and um he's here so that's why the spelling um he has a he has a complex language and also it is created for this rather dull human being who he works very hard to teach this language. Um, and, and that's it, isn't it? It's just to have the humility to understand that maybe this other being has something to say and, and you know, maybe it is sometimes worthwhile listening. Yes, and this being... He's very happy and he's always next to me and all of that. But he is also not free. Uh, he would love to run, but I'm not sure he'll come back. And so he's kept restrained and he has to walk on a leash and he can't go out and get the food that he would normally get. And he can't go to the store and all of that. His life is. And he's a very happy dog but his life is circumscribed by my needs and uh, so I recognize that it is consequently at least my duty to understand him as well as I can and to meet what needs I can in exchange for the curtailment of his liberty and for his generous loving so we just have a couple minutes left and I have Two two things I would like for you to do, if you don't mind. One of them is, um, can you can you give some hints as to how someone who listens to this, who might be intrigued by it, can and say they live in a city, so they don't have immediate access to mountain lions or bears. Um, can you can you like? Quickly talk about how they could, um, even pigeons. even even in New York City, they could still start. Pigeons. I'm going to go to pigeons. Great. Uh, Laura Simpson, <clears throat> master storyteller, has a whole relationship with pigeons um, that she um, that she feeds and that she is connected with. And uh, my friend Danelia Wild, who lives in L.A. in the city, has a whole relationship um, on her 
a little patio with uh, with squirrels and birds. And uh, she puts out food. She talks to them. They come back. They know each other. Um, birds may leave gifts. All kinds of exchanges are possible. So I think living in a city is no problem whatsoever. Just see who's there. Thank you for that. And then the, 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 the other thing I wanted you to do is to, like in the last minute, um, <laughs> somehow sum up this conversation or what, what is it that you would like to leave listeners with? Um, the natural world is an intelligent um, field of many complex beings and the fate of the planet guides on our recognizing this and supporting diversity and learning to interact in um, ways that sustain uh, the earth. This is our essential task. And it's a beautiful task because these beings are so intelligent and idiosyncratic and interesting that we will only have joy in opening our hearts to them. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you, as always, for your great work in the world. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Dina Metzger. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.